And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. In some ways, Rachel Maddow needs no introduction. She's such a powerful presence in our public debate today. Her reporting has been impactful. Her commentary is must-watch TV for people on the left. But she's also one of the most interesting people that I know. She's got an extraordinary story. Her journey is unlikely. So it was fun to sit down in New York last week with Rachel to talk not just about the stories she covers, but about her own story. Rachel Maddow, so good to see you. It's great to see you, David. A, uh, now a, an icon of the left. <laughs> uh, the, 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 ex, what, what did we, the explainer in chief. Oh, that's nice. But um, I, how unlikely is it that someone uh, like you would spring from uh, Castro Valley, California? <laughs> Explain Castro Valley when you were growing up uh, to... Castro Valley listeners. is um, is an unincorporated area <laughs> in the San Francisco Bay Area that is best known for being the intersection of two very unpleasant freeways. While I lived there as a kid, my town went from kind of like chicken ranch, rural. We had a, a, a ranch rodeo parade every <laughs> year and everything. Um, it went from that into housing developments, into bedroom community for the rest of the Bay Area with a lot of tension that went with it. It was turning from a sort of working class white community into a more middle class, mm-hmm. very diverse community because mm-hmm. the Bay Area is very diverse. Yes. And so the the class and race stuff happened in a way that um, it was dislocating to a lot of people. And it meant for lots of really fraught, like hate crimes and um, yeah, and, and uh, skinheads, skinheads and, and yeah. stuff. It was a it was a weird time. I mean, the eighties were weird for everybody, but I it was a weird place to grow up. Tell me about your your folks. Uh, your dad was uh, in the military mm-hmm. um, and was a commissioned officer, I guess, in the Air Force. Is yes, that? he was a captain in the Air Force. And or, but and and left right be, uh, before you were born. But yeah. Uh-huh. So my brother, he when my brother was born, my dad was still in the Air Force, and then he was out just before I was born in '73. So he was in the Air Force during Vietnam, but he served, served stateside. He never ended up getting um, shipped overseas. He was a JAG, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's interesting. My grandfather worked had been a jeweler uh, in New York and went west because my grandmother had asthma. And so they needed to move to a dry climate and they moved to Arizona and they ultimately moved to San Diego. And my grandfather with his jeweler's skills, you know, hewed here on, on 49th street in Manhattan, yes. um, ended up working on airplane instrumentation at all of the, um, at the, the aeronautics companies in Southern California. And so my dad grew up absolutely obsessed with airplanes and still to this day, my dad now in his mid seventies will see a plane in the sky that I can't see. And will tell me how many engines it has and where it was built. Like he's still, so he was fascinated by that. And- yeah. And so when it came time to figure out what he was going to do in Vietnam and what he was going to do about the draft and grad school and his buddies and everything, he decided to, uh, enlist and go to officer training school, and for him, the Air Force was the only was by far and away what he wanted to what he wanted to do. My mom was born in um, in Newfoundland, northeastern Canada, now famous because of Come From Away, the Broadway musical about what happened in 9/11 when the planes were diverted to Gander. Um, this was when Canada was a an ally was of the U.S. before the war. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. 
And she and one of her sisters uh, emigrated to the U.S., first to Boston and then to San Francisco, and they apparently hosted hot parties at their apartment. These two blonde Canadian girls um, hot, hosted hot parties, and my dad showed up in Air Force uniform at one of their parties, and they met and hit it off, and then he got mono. <laughs> and for some reason, he felt pushy enough that he wanted to go recover on the couch of this nice Canadian girl whose uh, party he had gone to. And uh, the rest is He was still in the military history. when he was wearing his uniform. This was just a pickup thing. Well, I don't know, actually. I should ask him about that. <laughs> so, Dad, like, was this your real uniform? <laughs> so, uh, the name Mad- Maddow was not really the original family name. Oh, you've done your Maddow family homework. Yes. Well, I'm, you know, I'm a first generation American. My father came from Ukraine, was Mm -hmm. now Ukraine. Uh, Axrod actually was that. It's a rare thing where the name wasn't changed. Yeah. But uh, you have a total normal number number of consonants and vowels for an American name yeah. without changing it from Ukrainian. Doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but it's it is what it is. Oh, come on, it has a cute no- but Mad- has a cute Mad- nickname. It's not Axe. It's come not, on, it's not Maddow. That's true. It does have that. <laughs> but you're, you there's a Jewish side of your lineage. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell so, me about about that. So my um, my mom, as I said, is from Canada. She's yes. English and Irish. And, right. Um, my dad's family. Um, both his mother and grandfather were from were immigrant families. My my dad's mom was from the Netherlands, and uh, my dad's dad was from we think Lithuania. But there's this intriguing ambiguity about uh, Grandpa Mato's origins, in part because the family was Jewish, but sort of didn't stay Jewish. Um, in the sense that my grandfather never identified as a Jew uh, to my dad growing up, didn't raise him as a Jew. Why do you think and that was? I think that there was, I mean, again, it is sort of an intriguing family mystery. I think it was probably some internalized anti-Semitism. I think it was probably an effort to both integrate into this country, but also to marry a non-Jew when he married Gertrude Smits, mm-hmm. who spoke Dutch at home. Yes. Um, that, you know, I, I think that may have been part of it as well. But at some point, we think that uh, Mado came from Medvedev, which is the yes, president of yes, Russia. Yes, I now. remember him well. Yeah. Uh, those were the golden days for yeah, President I, Medvedev in, think, in, in, in the interim between the Putin era. Then. God bless him. Have you seen the. the um, Alexei Navalny drone videos of Medvedev's dashas yeah, and, yes. and he's yeah. doing well. Yeah, turns out Government things worked been out very, all right. Very, very good to him. His palaces look yes. nice from yeah. the air. Um, so I think that Matt, Matt, we think that Mato might have come from Medvedev, but it's again all it's all a little bit lost in the sauce. And extended family is all very obscure too. That we don't really know who our extended family members are and it's been a little bit of a a little bit of a journey of discovery for my dad as he sort of found his cousins in yeah. late in life and figured out who's who um but it's yeah i have a i have a family history a family tree that's more like a juniper bush like it just gets <laughs> you can't really see the branches anymore it gets fuzzy at the edges you but you your mom uh was catholic is catholic mm-hmm. and uh and your dad converted to catholicism yeah. and you were raised in a in a in a observant Catholic family. Yeah. So my dad converted when I was eight. Um, and again, it wasn't, we didn't, we never had the sense that he was converting from Judaism. Later when I was in high school or college, my parents sat my brother and I down and said, you know, your, your father actually comes from a Jewish family. We were like, yeah, we know. Like, you know? <laughs> yes, it wasn't a secret to us. We just know that it's weird and we don't talk about it. Uh, but my dad converted to Catholicism. My mom grew up in a very Catholic household. She has sisters who are nuns and, um, 
and and we were an observant household. I you know it's the the politics of the Catholic Church got I think difficult for my whole family. Both my brother and I are are both gay, and the the sort of family values politics of the Catholic Church um, over the last couple of decades have been a real challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, that was I think the the conservatism of the church on that issue made it really hard for my mom in particular when I came out. Um, but, you know, we... But that so- wasn't... When you... that I, I mean, I want to talk to you about that coming mm. out story because it's kind of an interesting story about how that all came down. But when mm. you were growing up, um, you were not out. Uh, and maybe you were still working through who, who you... You know, what your identity was, who you were. Uh, how... I got the sense that uh, that Castro Valley was a difficult place for you <laughs> when you were growing up as you were figuring out who you were. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't want to, I don't, I don't have any, I, I, there's no sob story in my, in my past. And I feel more than anything, I feel lucky. Um, but I didn't really know that I was gay until I was 16 or so. And a lot of people know when they're, you know, four. People mm-hmm. wake up and they've never known anything else. I didn't quite figure it out. I just thought there was something sort of wrong with me. But I didn't know that there was anything right with me until I was mm-hmm. 16 or so. And then I graduated from high school a little early. I graduated when I was 17. And I came out to my friends and ultimately my family in that first year of college. You posted you posted <laughs> stuff around the Stanford campus uh sort of announcing this fact yeah around my dorm this got covered in the school newspaper and (laughs) you asked them to hold the story they they ran it prematurely and there was this awkward thing where you hadn't talked to your folks about it yet yeah the story got forwarded to them yeah i was a jerk i mean that was (laughs) (laughs) we all look back on our coming out stories and there's this sort of identity politics shine that you put on it where it's like oh i was so brave i was able to finally publicly tell the world who i really am and isn't that great in this case the way i came out i was a total jerk because i was full of myself i think in terms i was finding myself i was 17 i had gone away from college for the first time i was sort of a sheltered kid i didn't know a lot about the world um, I didn't know how to write a you know five paragraph essay. I didn't know how to work a library. I didn't know how to eat at a restaurant. Like it was all the stuff I really didn't know how to do. Uh, but I was very cocky and proud of myself that I was coming out. And there was almost nobody who was out at Stanford. It was only me and one other kid in the whole other freshman class. And I decided that I was going to come out in a sort of pounding my chest way. And I put up these uh, put up this letter in the dorm that I lived in, and it did get picked up. And I agreed to do this article with a with the Stanford newspaper. Um, And I knew at the time that I hadn't told my parents, but I had plans that weekend to go home and tell my parents. And I had talked to the paper about they were going to run it the following week, and they just ran it early. And so then, yeah, somebody did mail it home to my parents. And so that was a particularly irresponsible thing for me to have done. Just it was 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 cruel cruel to my parents. Yeah, They were just really, really hurt. And what were their what was their reaction to uh, now was your brother out at the time? No, my brother's older, but he didn't come out till years later. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my parents, you know, it was they just I don't blame them at all. They had they were conservative and and uh, relatively conservative, and they were certainly you know we were a conservative Catholic household, and they didn't know, and they were shocked and they were embarrassed. They were hurt by the way that I'd done it. 
Um, my mom took it very, very hard. She thought it was her fault and that she did something wrong. And my dad was mad at me for how irresponsible I'd been in terms of letting my letting my mom know. And then he had his own issues. I mean, it was just, it was a difficult time. And it meant for, it, it made for a difficult a uh, couple of years, at least, uh, with my folks. But but again, I mean, I don't I don't want to overstate it? it. I mean, my parents now could not be more supportive. And they're, I, I feel I'm the luckiest person in the world. I got, I got the best parents on earth. Um, and they're even closer with my partner, Susan, than they are with me. And um, so with it worked, we're all worked out well. You've together for ever, like 20 years yeah, or something? Yeah, like 20 years. It'll be 20 years next year, this upcoming year. Yeah. You know, I... Um, uh, when you said uh, just a couple of seconds ago that you didn't, you thought there was something wrong with you until you figured out that there was, you know, what was right, mm-hmm. right with you. Uh, that's that's a painful thing to think about, though. Uh, and I'm sure in that era, in particular, I think that was probably fairly common. Um, you know. Yeah, I'm. Well, you know, I was um, born in 1973, so I was 17 in 1990, and I was growing up in this little town, but it was in the Bay Area. And if you widen the lens a little bit, what's going on there is the apex of the AIDS epidemic. Right. And so there was sort of a duality in terms of what was going on. I was sort of figuring out who I am and figuring out, like I said, that sort of I wasn't broken, which is what right. I sort of thought, but also recognizing that this meant that I was a person who was part of a community that mm-hmm. I knew about but did not yet know anyone in and, and had never really considered. It's not something you consider joining. You just realize that you're right. part of that community. And so it was a simultaneous personal and political thing, realizing, well, you know, I, I think this is who I am. And I think this means that this is my, the gay community is my community. And that was a community that was in the wars at that point in yeah. terms of fighting for its existence. And so that became a, that became a, a, a focus for me and a channel for me in terms of learning who I was. And you start working on that issue world. before you I mean, as a high school student, you started working yeah, on that Yeah, as issue. I was coming out, around coming out to myself, figuring out who I was, when I was about 16, I started working on AIDS issues. And that issue uh, defined a lot of what you did as an academic. Yeah, uh, for more than a decade, yeah. You know, that was really my, on, what I did. Uh, AIDS in prison issue mm-hmm. and so on. You went and you wrote legislation and you uh, championed legislation. Talk about that. So when I first started on AIDS issues, again, it was when I was in high school and I started working at a, a hospice for people who were, who were dying with, with AIDS. Um, and that was in Oakland, California. And then I ended up um, getting involved sort of in AIDS education first and then ultimately with activist groups like, like ACT UP. Um, and I found my, I, I had, you know, not, and ACT UP is, I'm, I'm glad that there's renewed cultural interest in sort of the history of ACT UP and ACT UP is still around and still doing good work. But having, being a young person in that, in that activist environment, sort of before 1996, which was the, ad, the advent of protease inhibitors, which really started to change things in terms of treatment and life expectancy and stuff. You sort of had to make decisions about what kind of activist work you were going to do. And I didn't feel scientifically equipped. It was very intimidating to try to get involved in the treatment activism stuff early on as a very young person, as a person not living with HIV, as a, as a, as a woman, as somebody who didn't have a scientific background. I sort of felt like the treatment activism stuff, which, is, uh, which was so important, which absolutely changed the world, yeah, saved absolutely. millions of lives. I didn't 
feel like I could do that at first. And so I was looking for ways that I could help and make an actual contribution and not just be somebody who sat there at meetings. And I ended up getting attracted to what I saw as kind of low-hanging fruit, winnable public policy battles. And that's how I got involved in the prison stuff. People see that as backwards, like, why would you do why would you do prison reform as the winnable thing? Yeah, but it was a very, very important issue. There were people who were dying in prison who could And there was a great toehold for making legally binding arguments to improve the situation. Mm-hmm. So there was a play there was a way to get traction on prison stuff, which is that prisoners are the only people in the United States of America who have a constitutionally guaranteed right to health care. They cannot take care of themselves. We have taken away their freedom under the Eighth Amendment. You have to provide health care to these yeah. people who the who the state has accepted responsibility for. As an activist, if you're trying to get health care, but yeah. Yeah. But if you're try if you're an activist and you're trying to get health care for people who aren't getting it, it is a blessing for your constituents to be people who have that explicit mm-hmm. constitutional right. And for to find be able to work with people at the ACLU Prison Litigation Project and other people in the Bay Area where there's this history of radical prison activism to be able to work in these, what were very specific goals, you know? There's a, the, the HMOs and PPOs that are, uh, that, are, that are treating people with HIV in the community have this formulary of drugs. Under the Constitution, people in California state prison must have access to that same formulary of drugs. It's a simple, it's a, it's a niche thing to be arguing for, but it's simple, it's direct, and it's true. And so it weirdly was, people saw that as a kind of a depressing thing to get involved in. But for me, it was very satisfying work because there's a, because you, you can both, ex, you can demand and expect that you will win those fights. Mm-hmm. And I think we made a lot of, I mean, you know, you we made a lot of progress. You on this compassionate release issue of women yeah. in... Uh, women and men. And men, yeah. you know, who are dying so they could die at home. Yeah, so the so people who are dying with with AIDS in prisons, um, were in this were in an unusual situation because in a lot of cases people were dying because they hadn't been treated properly in prison and that created a justice imperative, uh, in terms of what you know, what we as a society owe to them, but there was also a progressive, and faith driven and um, intensely capable network of hospices mm-hmm. for people, particularly in Northern California, where there were a lot of people who were dying with AIDS. And they were good organizations, well-run, who knew who they were and knew what their power was. And they were willing to take responsibility for helping people who were the, you know, residents of the California Department of Corrections, Mm. helping them die in the community rather than dying in a jail cell. And when you have um, assets in the community that are willing to do that, and you have a problem that the prison doesn't particularly want to deal with. There's a way to there's a way to bring those two things together. This was years before you were ever probably even contemplating a career in broadcasting. A, cole- a career I never contemplated a career in broadcasting. Well, yeah. I think that ship has sailed, my friend. <laughs> but um, but the way you talked about that seems to me a little bit the way you approach what you do in that you said it was an, an, a niche issue on which you could make a difference. And yeah. it seems like you seek out those kinds of, you talk about the big issues, you talk, but you also, whether water and flint, yeah. uh, for example. Uh, by the way, your father worked, he worked at a u- utility that dealt with yeah, water. Yeah, he worked at the water company. Yeah. yeah. Did that have play at all in your decision to get... 
your interest in this Flint issue? You know, it's that's a great question. Nobody else has ever asked me that before, but yes. Um, I have a, an outstanding senior producer who works on my show named Laura Conway. Um, and she's just a savant. She's one of these people who just thinks differently than everybody else. And sometimes that means that she doesn't communicate with people, but it means that more than anybody else, she finds issues that nobody else has seen and gets the news value of them. And she's just, I feel I'm blessed to have a great staff. And Laura started working on the Flint issue because she was following activists in Michigan and in Flint who'd been talking about this emergency management thing they do in Michigan state government where right. they come they in and get over. rid of the local government and yes. install somebody. And, yeah. So she'd been sort of following that as an activist issue. It's an interesting issue in terms of democracy and started to notice these complaints about Flint water. And it was, Flint has has had so many challenges and there's the, so many interesting national narratives about Flint in part driven by Michael Moore being from there, yes. and Roger and me and all that stuff. Yeah. It was hard to figure out, like, is this a long-standing problem in Flint that we're just learning about now? Is this something new? Is this something specific? Where did this problem come from? And Laura listening to the activists, learning that this was actually something very new, learning that this was literally a problem created by the bu- a button being pushed by somebody who had come in and taken over the local government at the orders of the governor. It was such mm-hmm. a strange policy thing. And me being able to go to my dad and say, Dad... What are they talking about in terms of treating the water so that the pipes don't leach? And he was like, aha. And my dad is a maximalist. And so he's sending me studies. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I've spent a lot of academic time reading um, engineering He's a big reader, too. I read that he, he like read every book on World War II in the library when he was a kid and so on. So he's, yeah, you, he's a you maximalist. come by this naturally. <laughs> it's true. We I mean, all not, have not terrible to, eyesight. Not to digress, but I... <laughs> I do remember a lunch, and you probably do too, that we had with the president, President Obama, outside the, in the little courtyard outside of the Oval yeah, Office, beautiful day, in the midst it. of the oil disaster in the Gulf. Mm-hmm. And you said to the president, Mr. President, I've read two books on collecting, uh, o- on stopping oil leaks, deep sea oil leaks, and I- I'm not sure your folks are handling this right. <laughs> and the president said, Rachel, you've read two books on that? <laughs> <laughs> it was specifically about booms, about how to lay booms in yeah. the water to collect floating oil. Yeah, yeah the president seemed I wouldn't <laughs> impressed is not the word. The word I, I think amazed little, is what it was. Maybe weirded out. <laughs> might be yeah. the right phrase. But anyway, so um, so he wasn't doing. I have to say, the booming was not done right after Deepwater Horizon. Right. But. We came up. We we. Uh, we figured it out what to do, but yeah. it was, it was, it, took a while. it, it did take, the initial it, response it, was, it, it, no, no, the, yeah. it, let me acknowledge that. Yeah. So, um, that was, I mean, that I, I've been thinking, I'm, I'm working on a project right now. So it's a side project about oil and gas and corruption and, um, sort of the resource curse and oil and Russia mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And I've been thinking about the Deepwater Horizon because the the thing that was amazing there is that the technology that it took for them to be able to drill 13,000 feet down, right, 5,000 feet of water, 13,000 feet through the, through the seabed, was like, like going to the moon. I mean, yeah. it was incredible technology. Yeah. And then when it came to shutting it down, when yeah. it went wrong, their idea was, li- remember the junk shot? Yeah. Their idea was literally, let's shoot junk at it yeah. through a fire hose yeah. and see if that stops. It. Yeah. To have no technology, not not just to clean it up, but to stop it when things yeah. went wrong. When they had the incredible technology to drill there, it still strikes me as like that's a that's a crisis in capitalism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're sort of well, still or, there. Yeah, yeah. You know? Or 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 a uh, cautionary note about capitalism. It just means that you need to be. You can't 
you can't make problems bigger than you can clean up. And you have to yeah. be able to prove you can clean up your problems before you're allowed to make a mess that big. And the oil company said they could. They couldn't. It, thankfully, Steve Chu figured it out. Yeah. But X, or you know, the but, Halliburton should have known. Well, I, I have, you're, you're, a, you're a deep thinker. I, I have a more uh, rudimentary concern, which is <laughs> how is it that we couldn't get the oil leak stopped, but we could find a way to get a camera down there a, a, yeah. a mile underground so cable television could run, run a, a, a box showing the oil leaking 24-7. Yeah. Just to remind people that we hadn't gotten it. <laughs> turned off i said this 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 but how about work. the how about the oil company scientists and the regulators looking at that feed on cable news and trying to calculate from that yes. how many oils how many oil barrels are leaking yeah, per no, second and doing trying to do those calculations oil companies said that they could handle like two hundred and fifty thousand barrel leaks that was ended up being like a sixty five thousand barrel leak yeah. they couldn't handle a fraction of it yeah and yet they're out there still doing they, that they, kind of job yes and and uh, you know, as part of the great deregulation push, uh, mm-hmm. some of the safeguards that were put in place after uh, the, the deep sea horizon. Yeah, those blowout leak. preventers and stuff had to get all better. And like right. all that, a lot of that stuff, all the reforms, the post deep water reforms, Trump rolled back. Yeah. But yeah. we digress because we're here to talk about <laughs> Rachel Maddow. And so you, you embarked on an academic career yeah. for a while. You went off to, after Stanford, you went off to Oxford. Mm-hmm. I guess somewhat you weren't sure that you were going to do that. And then someone explained to you that nobody turns the Rhodes Scholarship <laughs> down. I, yeah, I kind of bum- I bumbled into that one. <laughs> but I ended up at Oxford and I did, the, I did eventually get my doctorate. It took me a while. And, but you didn't quite know what you were going to do. Yeah. And you ended up in Northampton. Northampton, is that right? Yeah. That's where you still. Yeah. It's, it, was a, it was an interesting. I mean, I'm, an, I'm not a planner. Um, and so, uh, I, I look for, you know, meaning and self-actualization in what I'm doing. I look for ways to be effective. I try to find things in which I can make a difference, but it doesn't mean that I plan ahead. And I ended up getting the scholarship to go to grad school. I don't think I otherwise would have gone to grad school, but once I got the scholarship, I was like, Hey, they're paying. I better get a big enough degree that nobody ever tells me I should go to school again. So that's why I ended (laughs) up doing the doctorate. I actually got admitted to the master's program and then, I started day one of the master's program and that day applied to transfer to the doctoral program because I there's no way they would have admitted me to the doctoral program. But once I was a transfer yeah, it's student, a bait and switch. Yeah, yeah. day one yeah. score. <laughs> um, and so then I, uh, I I wasn't done by the time the scholarship ran out. I wasn't done with my doctorate because I had I ended up doing a lot of AIDS activist work in London. That's actually where I started doing AIDS treatment work. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of graduated to that and had a lot of fun and had a good social life and didn't get much written. Um, and then, so I needed to, I, had, I was completely out of money, really totally broke. And I needed to live somewhere where I didn't have to pay rent, but I could finish my doctorate. And I, th- and I thought I'd only need like six or eight weeks. So I had two choices. My dad's best friend from the air force. I was a very nice guy, a conservative Republican lawyer in Orange County, California. He said I could work in like a broom closet in his law office. I was like... That would hasten your... uh, Exactly. That sounds terrible. (laughs) I will finish fast. That's a great plan. My other option was that I had friends who had moved to Western Massachusetts just Mm -hmm. outside Northampton and were running a a B&B 
and they were raising dogs and it was it was like the fall heading into winter and so they're like it's really snowy here we have no internet access <laughs> we're raising dogs and we live in the country and i was like well i hate the country i'm not interested in dogs i don't like cold weather and no interest in new england those are my two choices those both sound terrible and wonderful i ended up going to new england but then i ended up uh changing my preferences and now i love new england yeah, i still live there Western i have dogs beautiful. now it's yeah. a wonderful part and of the dogs world. are great yes <laughs> I, I'm, I'm in complete uh in the are you a big, you a big a dog. dog person or small no dog because i live in an apartment my dog's 30 pounds okay mac mac He's a labradoodle nice and uh he is the the greatest guy i mean but you know he kind of runs runs our lives <laughs> So he's very manipulative. My dog right now is a lab, no doodle. He's mm-hmm. 111 pounds. Oh, yeah, that's a big dog. He's like a pony. That wouldn't go in the apartment. Well, mm-hmm. he lives, I mean, he, we go, we're in Western Mass part of the week and, and then, then in, in, in New York yeah. here. He's actually, he's like a, he's like a couch that wags. Like he's, <laughs> he's quite yeah. happy in the apartment. He doesn't, you know, he's happy to run after a fox or something when we're, out in the, when we're home. But uh, in the apartment, he just likes laying in front of the air conditioning vent. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, but they're the center of the universe. They are, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Dave in the morning. Yeah, wow. In Northampton, Mass. Your homework is freaking me out. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that was your first gig. You, first they were looking for gig. somebody to be a co-host on this radio. Yeah, show. like a sidekick. They they needed what they the advertisement actually was for a news girl. So uh-huh. I applied to be the news girl. Um, this is again. I was super broke trying to finish my doctorate. And um, even though I wasn't paying rent because I was sort of helping out around the house for my friends who had this place in the country, I did, you know, you need to eat. And so I started doing um, odd jobs. I was working, I worked like at a coffee roasting company and I did deliveries and I applied to work at a video store, didn't get the job. Um, Didn't know enough about movies. No, I think I just wasn't, I just didn't seem like a good bet. (laughs) <laughs> I just don't think I seemed reliable. I'm not a good joiner. Anyway, uh-huh. but um, these friends who I was living with were fans of this morning show. And when Denise with Denise, that was, she was the news girl, Denise. When she, <laughs> when nice. she re- yeah. retired, Sounds moved like on to other great things. Show. It was yeah. a great show. Yeah. Uh, they did open on-air auditions for the new sidekick for Dave in the Morning. And I, the, on a whim, like kind of dared by my friends who I was living with, did the audition and got hired and started the next day. And you... You immediately recognized this was something that you enjoyed doing. It was, it, it clicked. It was weird. I had never, ever, ever thought about, I mean, I did in sixth grade at Canyon Middle School, I did journalism class for one quarter. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I had really never, ever thought about being, doing any sort of media at all. And, and as an activist, I had written press conferences and you know, written press releases and talking points and stuff for other people who were way more important than me. Um, but actually like deli- what my first what i was doing is doing rip and read ap news copy yeah. and like lead- reading the list of elementary schools that were closed for snow day and stuff but it was which is an essential s- task by the way it was so fun yeah. i loved it but let me ask you a question you you i want to know how you think about yourself and your role now and and then i'm going to continue the the narrative mm. here but since we're here uh how do you do you think of yourself as a journalist or do you think of yourself as an activist? Or how do you think of yourself? Because in some ways, you are someone who people tune into. And yes, they want to learn from you. Mm-hmm. But they also tune in because they have a point of view. 
Um, and you know, I asked John Favreau, my buddy, my mm-hmm. my who who I love, uh, who is doing the Pod Save America deal now. Yeah. I said, "Do you consider yourself what you're doing journalism?" And he said, "No, I'm I'm trying to encourage engagement." Yeah. Um, you 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 are a journalist. Um, but there is that other element of it, and I, I, maybe it doesn't matter, but I'm wondering how you think about what you do. You know, because I had a previous life where I really was an activist, that's mm. what I was really doing full-time, even when I did my doctoral degree, and I did it on HIV in prisons, HIV and healthcare reform in prisons, that was sort of overtly done as a sort of participant observer in that kind of politics. Like, I, I was an activist, and that was my life, and that was how I thought of myself. And then I stopped doing that and instead started doing full-time radio first and now TV. And I remember um, I was involved in lots of different activist elements in, in AIDS and prison stuff um, right up until 2004 when Air America came yes, online, mm-hmm. and I moved from Western Mass to New York to go take this job. And I remember telling my friends and coworkers in my activist life, listen, I need to stop out for a while. Like I'm, I'm stopping doing this so I can see if I can make this new career in media. And I think it's not going to work. And I think I'll be back in six months. Yeah. But you guys They're need still to take over my responsibilities. <laughs> yes, exactly. Who's going to run the list, sir, that, for yeah. hepatitis C in state prison? <laughs> yeah. Um, so... I, 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 for me, there's like a, there's a, the there's a date in March, 2004, mm-hmm. when I stopped activism and started this instead. And I, I really, um, I see myself as somebody whose job is to explain the news. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, 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 the outlet that I have at MSNBC is one in which I have editorial freedom to do what I want. I'm also bound by NBC news rules and standards, and we follow those religiously and um, I get to say I I. E. you need to be able to support what yeah. you present as fact as fact. Exactly. And there are facts. Yeah, there are facts, yes. it turns out. Yeah, let's assert that. And I, I feel like it's my, like the, the, the implicit contract that I have with my audience is that you will learn things on my show that will be true and that will help you understand what's going on. And I will always be honest with you about where I'm coming from in terms of giving you that mm-hmm. information. And I, uh, I, so I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't see you don't myself the way that Favreau sees himself. Yeah, I'm yeah, not, yeah. I'm not trying to. And, make I, and I'm not do suggesting you, you should, but no. it's a, it's an interesting. I mean, it's it's a category sort of onto itself in that you're doing journalism, mm-hmm. but it's clearly journalism with, uh, as you say, you you don't From hide your my point own of view. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, but what I'm telling you is true. I mean, we we do corrections. You know, when yeah. when we deliver information on the show, I there is you can take it to the bank and. Um, I'm not trying to get a, a candidate elected. I'm not trying right. to get people to call their member of Congress. I'm not running activist campaigns. I'm not trying to raise money for anything. Right. But we do cover stuff that I think is important, and then I tell you why I think it's important. And it motivates people. I mean, the stuff you do does motivate people. I mean, the Flint uh, piece, and maybe that's journalism at its best, is reporting that that creates act- action. That arms people to take yeah. action if they want to. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm not. I'm not trying to. Not trying to change the world. I'm just trying to explain it. Yeah. Well, sometimes by explaining it, you can also change it. And Flint, you know, yeah. uh, still struggling. But that's an example. Shedding a light on stuff and yeah. true light and and yeah. and that's and the doing thrill. Stuff thrill, and, honestly. Yeah. I, I want to reserve a little time to talk about where we are now. But you mentioned Air America. Yeah. You were you were kind of a new. 
They took a bet on you. Yeah. Uh, the star of Air America was Al Franken. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want to take a minute to ask you about that because I, I am w- way down with the um, Me Too movement. I, I think it's been an incredible social uh, movement mm-hmm. that long overdue. Um, I kind of think Al got screwed a little bit hmm. because he was asking for a hearing and he kind of got pushed off the cliff, and I think he got pushed off the cliff because of the Alabama Senate race, and he was kind of an inconvenience uh, at the time. Do you think it was a strategic decision by other Oh, Democrats? I have no doubt. I have yeah. no doubt. I have no doubt about it. And, um, you know, I regret it because I, I do think he, he should have had his hearing. I mean, they, and then after, they may have taken whatever action uh, they took. But he, you know, uh, he never had that. Yeah. And, um and, you know, he had done all this very, very good work. And I know he was your colleague. And I was wondering what your perspective on it was. You know, it's, uh, I'd be interested to hear his take on it now. I mean, one of the things about the way that he was pushed out um, is that he's sort of, I think, de facto not allowed to talk about the circumstances of his resignation for, um, I don't know how long that penalty right. box period is for. Right. Um, but I'd... Eventually, I will want to hear his take on yeah. why he went and, As, and how yeah. and what choices he had and what choices were made. And whether he regrets the choice he made because he, yeah. he pulled the plug on himself. He yeah. did it under pressure. Exactly. He did it under pressure, but he pulled the plug on himself. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure and he the would Democrat, make the same the, decision And the fellow again. Democrats who pushed him don't have regrets. Right. But he is the one who ended up, you're right, pulling the plug on himself. Yeah. And so does he have I hear from a lot now? of people, though, who about that particular case. And I mean, I think it's incumbent on people to be scrupulous about this, regardless of what the political tribe is of the of the person Absolutely, who's accused. Yeah. So, I, you know, I um, and I, I feel strongly about that. But there was something about the way that thing came down that was, I think, a little uh, a little odd because of the kind of because of the strategic yeah 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 yeah, which was but anyway air america Mm -hmm. you you became a star you people (laughs) on tv no i you know i all my lefty friends would say would start quoting you and i'm like like who is this person who they're talking (laughs) about and then you start turning up on on television in fact one of the shows that you started turning up on was tucker carlson's show on msnbc it was called the situation with yes. tucker carlson no room just no the situation. it was just the situation yeah yeah <laughs> yeah he was that was the first paying job i ever had in in tv and the executive producer this is a little bit in the weeds but the executive producer of tucker's show is a a, a brilliant at the time was a brilliant human being named Bill Wolf. Bill Wolf ended up being the executive producer of The Rachel Maddow Show ah. when it started on MSNBC. But Bill and Tucker hired me. Um, they it was like at the, at the at the outset of Tucker's show it was an 11 p.m. show, and. The idea was that it would be Tucker and then a panel, a repeated panel the same night of people who he liked, who disagreed with each other, who would fight with him about whatever the topic of the show was. And it was me and um, an HBO boxing commentator and a conservative talk show guy from Boston. And the whole the whole premise fell apart immediately. But we all got hired, and so then we were kind of around whenever they needed us. And at the time, I was doing... 
uh, the first show that I'd been on at Air America had kind of gone away. And my show on Air America was 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. solo, one hour, no guests. And I used to write the show. Nobody writes talk radio. Right. Um, no call-ins, no guests, solid hour. And so You mean I'm, Rush doesn't, he doesn't write all of that out? <laughs> I, it's so thoughtful. I just... You just assume yeah, that it was yeah. written by a team of PhDs. Yes. Yeah. So I'd go do the Tucker show live in Secaucus at 11 o'clock and then at midnight I would uh, take a car service to a diner in, um, in, in Manhattan and I would get breakfast at midnight and then I would work from midnight to 5 a.m. writing my 5 a.m. Air America show and whatever producer I had at the time I went through a lot of them they'd all end up like with their head on the keyboard <laughs> the, 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 you know the, the L key 40,000 times how long did that go on for? a long time that was I'd worked overnights for a long time and then I'd wrap up I'd, I'd leave at like 7 or 8 in the morning I'd go to this bar in um, Times Square called Smith's and that remember when French toast became freedom toast during yes, the Iraq yeah, War? Yeah. I'd have freedom toast and a tall boy a Coors Light at nine AM in yeah. Times Square and then go home and sleep all day. Yeah, you know, I, I worked nights uh when I was a young reporter at the Tribune and yeah. you don't want you don't want the end of your shift to be the end of your day because you you want to be a little alert. Yeah. You know, when you're so you have to do something after you and pretty much the only thing to do, like my shift ended at two AM was oh, yeah. To go, go to, to a, a saloon, yeah, <laughs> you know, which was unhealthy but fun existence. But think about how much more healthy it is to go to a saloon at two a.m. than to go to one at nine. No, I know, but so. on the other hand, yeah, well, especially if you throw the French, the French toast in. So Tucker, yeah, you, he's now obviously uh, a star on Fox. Is he a different character than he was when you were working with him? That's an interesting question. You know, I don't, we don't overlap that much. We saw each other at an event in Washington a few months ago. I don't tend to do anything in the world. And so I don't yeah. ever encounter people in, yeah. in the wild. But we, we, both, we both fish. Um, and uh, we were doing an event that was a, a benefit for a, a, a fishing conservancy. And so I saw him and it was like we clicked again. You know, it's, I mean, obviously he's doing his own thing at Fox and I'm doing my own thing at MSNBC. And both of our careers have taken a lot of twists and turns. But he's still... I think he's still the same guy. Um, and he's always been a, a decent and very civil guy to me. You know, you talk to people who work with Tucker, nobody's ever going to, you're not a screamer. He's not a, um, he's not a bad guy to work for. He's not, no, even if you completely disagree with him and you can't hard, find this hard to imagine, he's a, de he's a decent person and he's kind to his wife and he's nice to the people who work for him and he's loyal and um, I like him. And that said, what he does on TV, I think, sometimes is nutty, but I'm sure he thinks the same thing about me. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure that's true. <laughs> um, I knew Roger Ailes, yeah. uh, and I knew him way back to the 80s when we were both political consultants working on campaigns, and he was on the other side of me. And I got to know him again in, when I was working for Obama, and he was doing his thing at Were you Fox. ever friends with him, or did you just know him You know, I would. I, I mean, we, I, would, I would not shy away from that we you know we were more acquaintances than friends but we spent a lot we had long conversations i yeah i would say he was a, a, a casual friend of mine but yeah. someone the thing is when you you know i when you've been sort of in the arena and you you know we we talked to each other as peers mm -hmm. who had been through the wars like some of the conversations were insane <laughs> you know where he'd talk about you know uh you know i don't i don't my, I don't have anything against you guys. I just love America, and you've got <laughs> communists in the White House. You know, Fan Jones and 
you want a, an, a, a national police force. It's like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And all of that stuff. Yeah, he really believed all the crazy oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, no. He Fox is first. like a John Birch guy from the middle of Ohio, and, and he believes that stuff. Yeah. He was like Dr. Strange Love kind of thinking, and but he, he, he created a network for people who of like mind mm-hmm. and was very successful at it. And I know he offered you some advice. He said he tried to hire you so that he could keep you off the air. Yeah, he, was, to, he said he would hire me and just pay me not to be on TV, yes. which I found immensely flattering, I have to yeah. say. I'm sure he was just buttering me up, but uh, he was also kind of, he was like that too. He'd tell, you know, he'd sort of obsequious, obsequious flattery um, was part of his knowing shtick, yes. I think. Um, but I ended up talking with him because I, you know, you end up fascinated with people who are good in your field, particularly when they're beating you. Yes. Um, you know, and Fox has been so dominant in cable for so long. I sort of ended up interested in kind of what he, not necessarily what he was trying to accomplish, because I do think that Roger operated Fox as a Republican political operation, yeah. meaning it was designed to elect Republican yes. candidates. It was a, it's a, it's an overt has an overt partisan intent. And I'm not that interested, never that interested in that. I don't see myself as a political operative in the way that he was. But he used television in such a way that he was able to um, main, all, mainstream, at least within Republican politics, stuff that was absolutely completely off the charts in terms of rational normalcy. And that's a skill that I found... Um, remarkable. And it, for me, it's, it's, it's also not something simple that he did. People say like, oh, you know, you got to be likable on television. You got to be pretty or you've got to be um, mellifluous or something like that. That's not what he did with Fox. So, you know, we, we do live in this weird world now where things are so polarized. And I'm sure people ask, like, why would you talk to Roger Ailes? Hmm. You know, they, he was a big dark star. And the way his career ended was horrific yeah um so uh you know why why would you dignify him now you know i as i said i'm i had a friendship with him as well yeah but it's uh, but but talk speak to that well when when i was making friends with roger and i would say that's what it was i i went to him sort of in a collegial way because i wanted to get tv advice from him Mm -hmm. i wanted to hear what um, he thought of my performance on TV and why I wanted to figure out some more about kind of his special sauce in mm-hmm. terms of how he had created this juggernaut. Um, I also, when I wrote my book about the military, mm-hmm. I suspected um, that people would be surprised that my book wasn't particularly liberal and that it might appeal to conservatives because it was a very nonpartisan yes. take on this issue. And I was intrigued by what he might think about it. Um, so I, I went to him for those kind of reasons. I will say that in in terms of the sexual harassment allegations against him, none of that was yeah. known or public at the time that I was friends with him. And once those allegations came out at Fox, I actually never talked to him again before he died. Yeah. Um, so I never spoke with him about that stuff. And I didn't know anything about it at the time that I was in communication with him. Yeah. But, you know, Fox obviously felt that those were serious and worthy allegations. I mean, well, to, absolutely. For, for him in the position that he was in, for them to have pushed him out, whatever their internal investigation showed was serious enough that he yeah. was... He was making a billion dollars a year for them. He was the yeah. genius behind the machine. And 
he and they and they forced him out yeah. for for and their top uh, uh, and within spitting distance of the time they forced out their top primetime star as well. Yeah. So they took the whatever whatever their internal assessment was of those allegations. They obviously were serious enough for that company to make very serious changes that cost them a lot, uh, and that's harrowing. And yeah. I didn't know anything about it when yeah, I was in communication I. with. Yeah. Roger, but um, it does, you know, it's it's chilling. Uh, let, let's just talk about yeah. Fox and its appeal. And I, I worry a little bit about the tribal nature of our country yeah. now. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people out there who feel like uh, elites, institutions, uh, the kind of norms that, uh, m- you know, many of us in places like, New York and Washington and that they haven't served them well Hmm. and that they're somehow conspiring uh, against them. I mean, that's Donald Trump's great inspiration, right? Because he he has um, he has, you know, blasted that message. He has made himself the sledgehammer. You talk to his voters and they say we sent him to shake things up and he's shaking uh, Hmm. things up. Um, and Fox is really amplifying uh, that message, the whole deep state uh, kind of message. And it's such a weird place from which to have that megaphone, you know? I mean, like, there's Fox sitting on 48th Street and 6th Avenue, and there's, you know, Donald Trump. I don't know if you know where, Trump, uh, yeah, Trump Tower. Trump Tower, 57th or whatever it right. is, you know, a few blocks over, and there's, you know, Trump flying. Like On Trump- the other hand, you know, someone asked me about this, and I agree with this. But think about Franklin Roosevelt, who was born into incredible wealth and ended up, you know, doing significant, you know, really probably the most radical of presidents in terms of of challenging uh, wealth and institutions Mm -hmm. in this kind of malefactors of great wealth, as he called them. Uh, So it isn't necessarily doesn't exclude you. No, but you don't have Franklin Roosevelt putting a Steve Mnuchin in at the Treasury yeah, Department, right? right? Hiring the the, the bipartisan uh, leadership cadre from Goldman Sachs yes. and bringing them in, right? So you've got this populism that is message only being amplified by people like, you know, Tucker Carlson, who's got like six middle names and comes from this incredibly aristocratic American background. Mm, yeah. and, you know, you've got, you've got people who don't embody what they're selling, selling it. Um, it as a as 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 a, a relic of somebody else's politics. I mean, Donald Trump doesn't have populist politics. He doesn't have populist policies. He has populist language. Other than on trade, I mean that 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 is that, that is a you know his is protectionism always populism? Well, I I I agree with you, yeah. but um, I think trade. Just looking at uh, the research that I've seen. Probably trade as even more than immigration was a driver of vote uh, for him because there are a lot of communities. You know, we talk about trade, and this is something that I think is a criticism of elites. We talk about trade and we say, well, there are trade offs, right? And the whole, the economy gains, mm-hmm. uh, consumers gain, there are jobs created, but they, yes, there are jobs lost, but there are jobs created. The problem is that the jobs that are created are often not for the people who. Lost, lost their them. jobs yeah. or in the areas in which they're lost. So um, I, 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 am, I, am not, I am not a protectionist, but I do believe we've failed to, as a country, have a strategy for these transitions that is real. 
Yeah. And and we're and I think there's a tremendous amount of sen- there's a tremendous sense of anger and loss because of but that. But you could imagine, I mean, Donald Trump wasn't a Republican for very long, right? You can imagine a sort of transcendent, nonpartisan, populist, even populist authoritarian agenda where he also supported a big rise in the minimum wage. Yes. Right? You can imagine that. Well, he's That's, sort of mused about things like that. But then, you know, but isn't doing but it. But he can't because the fact of the matter is he, you know, The Republican Party clearly has made a Faustian bargain with Trump, but he's also made a Faustian bargain with them. Or maybe maybe it isn't Faustian. Maybe it's just a bargain he always intended uh, to protect their fundamental, the fundamental interests of the swampy people that he denounced as a candidate. Yeah. And so you end up with the cabinet that he's got and you end up with the tax policies that he's got and you end up with a lot of disappointed people in the upper Midwest in terms of what the impact of these trade policies is going to be. And you end up with the wage disparity saying the way they are and stuff doesn't get better, but he stays in power. And why? Well, I think that, I mean, we'll see. It's not, the story's not over yet. Yes. I mean, November's going to be fascinating mm-hmm. to see, watching all the special elections um, watching yeah. the primaries going the way they are, seeing the Republican Party just decide to go hard edges, you know, you're, it's it's Trump or nothing. Um, and well, the defeat Democrats of the, Sanford is only going to exacerbate that. Yeah. What do you think about Mark Sanford as a politician? Well, I think he's been he's until this moment, and 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 I don't fault him for. I mean, he stayed true to his political principles. Yeah. Uh, although I. I understand he was on the air this morning saying the lesson he learned was you shouldn't take on Donald Trump if you're a Republican. But, um, I mean, listen to survive what he survived, you know, to to the, the you know, the problems that he had as governor. Yeah. Uh, and to come back and get elected. And, you know, the guy had never lost an election until yeah. now. Which is amazing because one of the elections he didn't lose was getting elected to Congress after right. leaving the governorship by the skin of his teeth because of the Argentina right. affair thing. Right. I mean, that is that kind of a personal political comeback was so unlikely anyway. Right. And but now the people he, of his state decided they wanted him until he crossed Trump. Right. Like, really? That's the that's the boundary? That's the barrier? But that is where we are. That's where the Republicans that are. That is where we and are. And where are we as a country if that's where Republicans are as a party? That's the test that we're going to learn over these next few months. I think it's going to be very, very interesting. You're right about the specials. Every every sort of objective uh, index in terms of voter enthusiasm uh, it points to Democrats having a, a, a good result in the fall. Um, but uh, they need a great result, and there's. I think they they will definitely get a good result. The question is whether they're going to get a well, big qu- enough good right. result. Right. Well, the question is, something. I mean, you know, my the house obviously is the first issue. Um, you know, I'm I, I think the Senate is a hard climb. Yeah, for sure. You know, because of ten Democrats in states that Trump won, and we tend to go tribal at the end of these sen- uh, statewide races. The history has been. You know, now there was an NBC poll that you probably read and probably talked about that suggested that people do want to check. Yeah. E- you know, even though Trump's approval rating was up by a wide margin, people want to check on him. They and don't that's want a constant in American political science. Like yes. that's the one thing that you can predict no matter who's president or no matter who's in control of Congress is that the American people, particularly after a presidential election, like to compensate, like to like to have split government. So where are you on this issue uh, trump has first of all let let's just stipulate he's been he's been good for you 
I mean, the fact <laughs> is, because he creates this binary world, uh, you know, Fox is doing very well. And your show in particular is doing very, very well because people are seeking you out. Uh, and um, uh, so let's, uh, let's just uh, uh, stipulate that. I'd trade my ratings. But here's the question: military exercises. Yeah, I want to ask you about that before we go too, because I know yeah. you, you know you've written a book on on the military, and you you know you're a student of uh, all this. I want to ask you about North Korea on mm. the way out. Um, but where are you on this question of what the Democratic Party? I mean, there, there, there's this big strategic debate. Do you maximize your base? Do you maximize turnout among your core supporters? Or do you try and develop a message that has a broader reach, uh, largely around the economy? You've mentioned some of these mm-hmm. issues. It's a really rip-roaring discussion, and I think it'll play out particularly in the presidential race. Yeah. What's your sense of that? I don't, I mean, you're much more of an expert on this stuff than I am. I, All right, well, let me tell you what I think. No. Yeah, okay, no, good. No, 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 <laughs> you, you just, ah, light dawns on Marblehead. Um, I... I think that in a midterm election, I think you may get multiple answers to that question in different parts of the country. I think that in blue states and red states, you're going to have different candidates running in different ways. Mm -hmm. You know, this talking about these specials, this guy who just uh, this Democrat who just flipped this seat just outside Green Bay in Wisconsin Mm -hmm. this week in the special election that Scott Walker didn't want to hold. And Eric Holder's group went in and sued and forced him to hold the special election. So the guy this is a Democrat's first time they've had a Democrat in that seat in 41 years or something. I went to his website yesterday, and his website is I, I, I like to fish, and so it like stuck with me. Yeah. His website is him holding up a stringer of about 15 uh, perch and crappie that he's caught, and all of his other pictures are him hunting and portaging a yeah. canoe and fishing, and yeah. it's all about him being. He well, that's a, a Connor Lamb race as well in exactly. Pennsylvania. You'll see I, races I mean, like you know, that, and you'll yeah. and you'll and you'll see very different races on the West Coast. Yeah, and that's as it should be. And I think yeah. the Democratic We're a big, Party country. is figuring out how what it wants its national leadership race. To to look like, but in part, they'll figure that out by trying to win local races everywhere in lots of different ways over these next few months. Although it's going to be tricky, right? It's a tricky thing because we are a big, diverse country, yeah. and yet there are incentives for Democrats in primaries uh, to to uh, to choose the one strategy, even as they think that in general the other strategy might work. So it's a really tricky pass. Yeah. S- speaking of tricky passes, let's let's talk about North Korea for mm. a second because. You know, I thought that it was uh, lunacy for Trump to be baiting Kim Jong-un as he did. And I still think it was irresponsible. But I will I will say this. Diplomacy, even though Trump told Rex Tillerson otherwise, diplomacy is better than war. war. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I would be willing to I give the president credit for starting a diplomatic process. He in typical hyperbolic ways, uh, wants to now claim, you know, world peace. Uh, <laughs> you know, the nuclear threat from North Korea is, is over. over. Yes, everybody yes. can sleep Never well. mind their nuclear weapons. Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> or the fact that they actually haven't conceded anything yet. Nothing. Uh, 
Um, They've backslid, actually, in terms of their previous denuclearization. And they got a lot out of this thing, I mean, propaganda-wise. And if the exercises are suspended, uh, a really tangible thing. a huge deal. I mean, talk about screwing. I mean, Japan is legitimately, has a legitimate beef with us over that. China getting what it wants, Russia getting what it wants, uh, South Korea getting steamrolled and not even consulted about that. And they sort of have to say, okay, that's great, because they want to try to support whatever Trump's doing here. But... Um, talk about hurting hurting our friends and, and helping our enemies and giving stuff away. It's just, uh, it's bewildering. Yeah. And where do you think it's going? I, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out where it came from. Mm-hmm. I mean, the offer to talk, um, to me itself, is a good thing, right? To talk, to, Offering to talk to our enemies, wherever they are, seems to me a good thing. If the talk itself the one-on-one discussion with the U.S. president or even with other high-ranking U.S. officials is sufficient to bring our enemies to a better place in order to get those talks. But to give, go right to the royal wedding style one-on-one leader-to-leader summit or, with yeah. no... With Good TV, no, Rachel. Oh, yeah. A, um, <laughs> I mean, that's really how he thinks. But, the, but to give him that with nothing conceded, with nothing offered, and then to offer more to them on top of that is, it's, it's so backwards. It's so, it's so opposite to America's national security interests and to those of our allies um, that it feels like it feels to me it's it, there's a mystery at the heart of it there's a conundrum at the heart of it which is why would you do this there's nothing in u.s national security interest that would call for the summit as a yes with nothing leading up to it with no promises given with them backsliding on nuclearization and then hurting our allies on purpose when you didn't need to wow where why why yeah, would you do that because it's good tv and uh, you know if you th- if you mapped out in beforehand what would the things that the north koreans would want the most mm. uh, obviously sanctions relief and the way the president is speaking could lead the chinese are already calling for sanctions relief but north it korean state media is saying that trump offered it and there's no transcript from right. the one on one meeting to prove whether or not he did it, yeah or under what conditions but uh, but the meeting itself would be the second thing they'd want would to be elevated from outlaw to uh, you know, statesman status yeah. overnight. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, that getting Mike Pompeo to come visit itself. I mean, it's the only, you know, Secretary of State coming to visit North Korea. It hadn't happened since Madeleine Albright. Yeah. yeah. And so that alone was such a big concession to them. That was giving them so, so much of what they wanted already. Yeah. Just keep larding more things onto that in terms of what they want while getting nothing from them. Yeah. Is, it's just... Um, I don't know where it's going. I just it just strikes me more than anything as as strange and unexplained. I have to I have to ask you about something that is about you and more personal, um, and it's something that I talk about a lot here uh, because of my own life experiences. Mm. Uh, but you've dealt with depression mm-hmm. over a long period of time, and uh, t- talk to me about that. I mean, how how long, uh, and how do you uh, how do you cope with it? Mm-hmm. And what's your message to others out there who are struggling with it? It's a hard set of questions. The, um, factually, I've been dealing with it since I was a teenager. And um, for me, the process of dealing with it was basically, it's, it's a process that's not over. Uh, it's not something where I like sort yes. of figured out what works and now it's done and now I'm fixed. I definitely still live with depression and 
I feel like I, I'm still, as a 45-year-old, evolving my responses to it and my um, ways of accommodating it. And I expect that those will change over the course of my life. I sort of try to stay, keep, keep my knees loose and stay... Stay Isn't that true of any door. illness? I mean, that's yeah. sort of part of the point. It's never done. If it's done, right. you're cured. Right. But as long as it's something that you're living with, you have to be open to it having a different kind of effect and needing to do different things to accommodate and live with it. So for me, most the breakthrough for me was learning that it was depression um, and that it's a cyclical thing and that it's a predictable thing and that it happens to me in ways that uh, I should know are going to recur because one of the things for me in depression is that it removes your sense of um, connection to the world. It, you lose your sense of perspective. Yeah. And so every time I am depressed in that moment, I can't tell you that I've ever been depressed before or that I ever will be again. Yeah. And so, Which is the most important thing yeah. to remember. Yeah. Uh, but you lose that sense because you disconnect from the world emotionally, disconnect from your emotions. And sort of, for me, the, the metaphor that works the most is like, you know, there's the, there's the space station, you know, and then there's like the little pod that goes off into space and you're out on your own. Sometimes it feels like my pod kind of gets cut off and I'm just out there in a way that I can't recognize the, the cues and emotional um, realities that otherwise support my life when I'm not depressed. So knowing enough about myself to know when that's happening to try to remember that it's going to end and to have support in my life in terms of my partner susan other friends in my life who are able to tell me you're depressed you're depressed this is this right. is what's going on here yeah. that's um that's a lifesaver and you and you you've gotten help for that and uh, yeah. professional help for it Mm -hmm. uh, which is an important message. I guess um, one of the things that people would wonder, I wonder, is you are, you know, you are consistent in your performance on television, mm. uh, and you're Thank energetic you mm -hmm. uh, and engaged. Uh, and presumably, you're going through some of these periods while you're doing your work. Yeah. And so, how do you, how do, you, how do you rally yourself? from this tunnel, yeah, uh, which is really what it feels like, this kind of dark tunnel. Mm -hmm. How do you rally yourself to, to, to do what you do? It's, um, it's interesting. I, you know, what, actually being on the air, which is the way that most people in the world experience me, um, that's like, for me, that's a sprint. You know, like it's not, I don't, I don't run a marathon every day in terms of what I'm doing on the air. The part where I'm actually on TV talking to the television camera, that is me running a hundred yard dash. And so there's nothing else going on. I'm not hot or cold or hungry. I have never sneezed while I've been on television That's pretty good. in 10 years on television, five days a week, 50 weeks, 50 weeks a year. Like it is, you know, it's like, um, uh, uh merging onto a freeway in the rain in the dark, in a snowstorm with no windshield wipers going 90 miles an hour and there's trucks like you just. And so that's that's the moment for me on television. Then there's my whole other 23 hours of life around that. And I, you know, I try to take care of myself. I know that um, uh, my family life is really important to me in terms of my equilibrium, um, my diet, my exercise, my sleeping, my compartmentalization with work. And I sort of recalibrate and titrate these things in a way that that try to take care of myself and sometimes i need to take time off i um i i just want to say to everybody who's listening who are maybe experiencing the same thing or have loved ones who are that it's important to recognize that uh 
this is this is an illness like like others, Absolutely. and one needs to treat it. And uh, and there's no character deficiency associated with it. The reason that I asked you about it is because you you know you're such a luminescent figure in our in the filament of mm. American media and politics. And um, you know I think people are shocked when you know when a when a Tony Bourdain happens or something like that because yeah. there's this sense that well these people they've got it all together. Yeah. And the fact is you can have it all together and still have, have to deal have with something illness. like yeah. depression. And the only and the answer is to get to, 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 to confront it, to get help, to have people who help you recognize what it is. Yeah. And, and that is and that point you cannot stress that enough. The one thing that you cannot, no matter what kind of depression you have or no matter what time of your life you realize that you've got it, no matter how it affects your life. The one thing that is true for all of us who are living with depression is that you cannot deal with it alone. You have to have other people in your life, whether it's professionals or loved ones or family members or somebody else in your life who you know who's dealt with it. There has to be at least one other person who you bring in to helping you fix it because depression isolates you. And the way it gets you is by keeping you alone. Yes. And the way that you get out of it, the way that you survive it is by bringing other people into your circle and getting help. Such an important message. Mm. Rachel, it's really a pleasure to see you. You too, David. Thank and, you. Uh, and to spend this time with you. Thanks. You, ask, um, you asked uh, um, creepily intrusive but oddly respectful and nice questions. Thank you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.